I've been involved in a number of cults, both as a leader and a follower. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy, and here with Jacob. Hello, I'm Jacob. All right, and uh, today we are bringing you a conversation with uh, author, podcaster, and uh, Twitch streamer, uh, A.M. Gitlitz, uh, talking about uh, Jay Posadas and, and Gitlitz's new book. Well, not, well, recent book, I guess, because it came out either in 2020 or 2019, but, you know, it's We're Life in Pandemic. What does that mean anymore? This book called I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Right. And before we begin, I think it's important to keep in mind that Posadas was a member of the GCI, which is distinct from the GCT, although the GCI went on to become the PORT, which is different from the POR, which used to be the GOM, although you shouldn't confuse that with the GOO, uh, GOU, because the GOM went on to become part of the BLA before breaking off to form the SLATL. And as long as you remember that, and don't forget that the PORT changed its name to the POT and then was reborn as the POR, you should be fine. Indeed. The, uh, the, in the actual book itself, there, is an entire, there are two pages of nothing but abbreviations and what they stand for. It is, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, it helps to suss apart these things. Like, for example, in my own head, I still have problems separating out the difference between the United Front and the Popular Front. Anyway, uh, I think, uh, I think you, uh, y'all will enjoy this conversation. You know, like, share, and subscribe to the show. If you, uh, if all you need to do is just tell one, one friend about this uh, weird little, slightly irregular leftist podcast out of the Pacific Northwest, we'll be happy. You can f- hit us, you know, support us on Patreon because we thrive by, or I should say, we uh, <laughs> we are supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Uh, find us on Twitter at giving the mic. Jacob, are you, are you still doing Twitch stuff? I am not at the moment. No. Okay, Jacob. But w- once in a while, Jacob used to do Twitch stuff, and so we're, he's putting a pause on that. And if you have any questions or comments, you can get a hold of us at giving the mic at gmail dot com. All right. Um, I think that's pretty much all of our stuff. For lack of a better, uh, lack of anything else, yeah. Enjoy the episode. gentlemen welcome once again to giving the mic to the wrong person i am your friend and host jeremy coming back in after a minor sabbatical to bring you yet more pod goodness with me today is jacob uh jacob say hello to those people hello welcome to the first official podcast of the portland poscatus podcast this revolutionary trotsky organization very excited Excellent, and we have a new group we're starting. Yes, and we have a, all the way from the East Coast. We have a esteemed author, podcaster himself. Uh, special guest, would you introduce yourself to the viewing audience? Hello, comradely greetings. I'm A.M. Gitlitz, also known as A.P. Andy from the Antifada. I uh, wrote a book called "I Want to Believe" about Posadism, and uh, yeah, um, I got a newsletter, gitlitz.substack.com. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yep, thank you. Um, we our our interest in the topic was kind of you know being on you know because if you have been a an online leftists leftists an online leftist for the last few years, you've probably seen a couple of the memes involving uh let's see you know '90s gray space alien bringing communism and mixing in a little bit of. Uh, th- uh, mushroom clouds and dolphins, and that is the um, particular. I, I don't know. It's it's at one point, yeah. It's it's like the strange what iconography has kind of come. You know, the the political thinking has been known as, uh, or at least you know, in the, kind of like how much it has degenerated into just these weird little uh, things. But it's also if it was you know. Had it not been these weird little, you know, meme images, could have been popularized again. And I guess, uh, should I call you AM or just call you Andy? 
Andy's fine. Okay. Uh, Andy, could you talk about like what led you to get into the topic and to uh, like why this and why this now? Well, uh, I'm friends with a ex- uh, guest of yours on the show, Comrade Communicator. Oh, yes. And uh, him and I, he, he just posted on Facebook one day, like, let's make a Posadism zine. And I've I've always been really interested in, in Posadis. Uh, it was back in, like, uh, I knew I knew someone <clears throat> maybe 12 years ago who told me about the, the Immortalists, the Biocosmist Immortalists. And then researching this group, uh, th- these were Bolsheviks who, who wanted to abolish death. And researching this group, I came across other sort of futurist uh, communist tendencies, including the Posadism. Mm-hmm. And so I was always really curious about it. I had been to Argentina and kind of like asked some people about some about it. Like, do you know these people? Are they still around? Uh, and then when I tried to write this sci-fi story, I want <clears throat> I want to do some research for it. And I just decided that the actual story behind this group would be more interesting than continuing this sort of mimetic afterlife or, or building that. Uh, and uh, so the book ended up being a biography of Posadas and a history of the movement, but then also the story of his reemergence in memes and why he's so popular today at times uh, in, in Google Analytics, his name was searched more uh, in a monthly period than even Trotsky and certainly more than any of his other rivals. So I'm just kind of curious about that phenomenon of uh, someone like that, like a, a rather marginal figure coming back into to popularity. Do, was there a point in researching this stuff where, where you knew that, or I should say, where was the point in researching the stuff that you knew that um it's like oh shit i really do have a book here that kind of was there a partic- was there a particular point in your digging through where it really kind of i don't know hit past some particular threshold or was it all just yeah kind of- yeah it was when uh i i was forwarded an interview with um uh luciano dondero who's quoted extensively in the Italian section. And I was able to, to email with him. He, he's still alive and very lucid. Very happy to talk about his time with the Posadist. And uh, he said that he was kicked out of the movement around 74, 75. Um, and he alluded to there being this kind of sex scandal that uh, was the, the center of, of that like purge of the old intellectuals. Hmm. Um, and so uh, around that time, I went to Europe. Uh, to look at the archives, and I found documents relating to this sex scandal and Posadas talking about his sex life and stuff. So on top of just understanding the history of Trotskyism and how Posadism fit into that and how his uh, ideas about aliens and nuclear war and dolphins were, you know, consistent with Trotskyism in some way, uh, I also got a window into the the inner life of Posadism in its final decade uh, when he was in exile in Rome until his death in 1981, and uh, the way it kind of shrank into this uh, very you know a, a very classic cult situation. I would, um, yeah, um, that, the that was one of the things that I didn't really I didn't know beforehand. But I guess I, <laughs> given how that process happened again and again and again with a lot of 70s movements i'm i'm, I'm kind of curious um what do you think led into you know what do you think led into what do you think the, me- the mechanisms were for you know that to happen with this particular group at the, at the same time was let's say what was in the air about that time was it just a bunch of like discouraged hippies and kind of like the 60s uh curdling into the 70s and a bunch of like you know pessimistic leftists or something or i'm kind of curious what do you think uh drove the, this particular group into that uh into that phenomenon of just being going from a sect to a full-on cult I know what it was for the Posadists, which was that throughout the course of the 60s, their their movement had really fallen apart. Um, Posadists was involved in uh, the guerrilla struggle in, in Guatemala. He had a Trotskyist party in Cuba, the only Trotskyist in Cuba, um, after the, the formation of the of Castro's government. Um, and he had like strong cadres all throughout Latin America. But um, he had made a lot of missteps around 64, 65. Uh, a lot of the group was arrested. Some of them were killed. You know, Guatemala was a huge disaster. That, that was really the start of the Dirty War. And uh, he was denounced by Fidel Castro as a result of that. Um, and so basically a lot of bad things were happening in the movement around the mid-60s. And the the core of it, which was the, the cadres of students and workers in Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, uh, Mexico, and elsewhere started to quit. They started to leave the movement. 
um, and you know form their own groups. And so the 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 base of the movement disappeared. So it, it was kind of just left with this intellectual core of mi militants. And Pisaz uh, was kind of forced to make this inversion of the concept of the party, which was supposed to be the vanguard party of world revolution, mm -hmm. to becoming like a socialist think tank where his ideas would be uh, sent via newspaper and, uh, and, and through, uh, you know, uh, personal relationships with the, the upper echelon of uh, communist China and the USSR and, and other so-called worker states. Uh, and in order for Posadas to properly develop and transmit his ideas, he believed that him and his militants need to be properly harmonized uh, and live communism in his uh, house outside of Rome, uh, where, where he was living in exile from Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, so at this point, he gets rid of all the old militants because they're, you know, they're actually very intellectual, very capable. And everyone who's left are just these kids uh, who had they had read Posadas um, and they had maybe read Trotsky and maybe, maybe, maybe read Lenin and Marx. But basically they were Posadist Posadist. You know, they were not they're hardly even Trotskyists. And they would do and think whatever Posadas said. Uh, and this is just when it became a cult full on. Yeah, that sounds but about right. Yeah, it, it, the same thing happened to a lot of other Trotskyist groups, a lot of other religious groups with very similar dynamics during this time. So it's a good question of why. I'm not sure. Yeah, you mentioned earlier on in the book that there's. Let's see, where was it? Uh, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, there's Peter Camejo uh, recalled them sitting strangely motionless before the meeting began not touching the cups of coffee served to them or t talking with others. And then Posadas came in the room, sat down, and picked up his coffee cup. All the Posadistas in unison picked up their cups as well and started drinking. And that happened, like, well before uh, what you're talking about, right? So Right. That's probably in the mid-60s in Brazil. So th these tendencies are already developing, it seems like. Well, yeah, I mean, in... Leninist groups, you do have a uh, a leadership that's very important. Trotsky said that the crisis of world revolution was the leadership of the proletariat. So leadership was always very fetishized and important, but it was supposed to be dem democratic in some way. Uh, you're supposed to have democratic centralism in Bolshevik organizations. And of course, uh, oftentimes this becomes, you know, very emphasized on the centralism and less on the democracy. And almost in no case was that more true than for Posadas, because after after his faction of the Trotskyist movement, the Latin American Bureau split uh, from the Fourth International, he set himself up as the monolithic leader. Like he had a theory of monolithism that's based on probably just based on kind of the cult of Lenin that Stalin set up. Uh, so he really did want to be like a, you know, a Stalinist kind of figure within his own party. And there was some uh, notion of autonomy for the different cadres. But basically what Posadas said went. And there was also, but, you know, also Posadas wasn't so intellectual. Um, so a lot of his ideas came from the intellectuals around him. And so the, the militant core kind of justified this monolithism this uh this kind of dictatorship of, of Posadas by saying, well, we're basically the the brain of the party and we're thinking around him and he kind of like uh decides what we're gonna say and we accept his decisions. And that did that functioned more or less until the early seventies when Posadas' ideas were way off from what the intellectuals in the movement were saying and thinking, and they began to criticize him openly, and then he kicked them all out. Yeah. Oh, one thing I did want to get on there, can you give us, uh, just for, you because know, I think a lot of folks are going to be encountering this stuff for the first time, can you give us a quick uh, biographical sketch of the man who would go on to uh, kind of adopt the group, uh, the group uh, nom de guerre, Jay Posadas? Yeah, so he was born Homero Cristalli in Buenos Aires in uh, 1912, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 1912. And... Uh, he, his parents were militants of the Fora, which was an anarchist union. They later joined the Socialist Party, and uh, Castali grew up very poor. Uh, he, his parents were shoemakers. Um, he played soccer, professional soccer, at a young age. Um, but uh, when the league professionalized, he got he uh, he didn't really he wasn't quite good enough to make it to the big leagues. So he was doing odd jobs, uh, but he was very passionate about 
the youth group of the Socialist Party in his 20s. And through his participation in this, specifically in a, uh, a Spanish Civil War solidarity group, um, he caught the attention of what would become the Trotskyists in Argentina, uh, who, who saw in him someone who could really bridge the gap between them, who were intellectuals and poets and bohemians, and the working class. So they recruited him, they gave him a lot of tasks, uh, they had him unionize a, a, a shoe factory in Cordoba, and he was able to do all this stuff really well. So he was a very diligent and competent and passionate Trotskyist. He like adopted the Trotskyist theory very quickly. Um, and th- uh, so after World War II, after the death of Trotsky, when the Fourth International is reforming, um, he is very quick to reestablish connections with the Socialist Work- Workers' Party in the United States and with the uh, the international uh, leadership uh, group of the Fourth International in Europe and basically presents himself in total accordance with the people who could make him the leader of Trotskyism in Latin America. Uh, so he's chosen in the early 50s to lead the Latin American Bureau. So this is like one... Uh, delegation of for all the Latin American countries, uh, which was you know uh, a lot of uh, I don't know maybe like ten countries had sections in the Fourth International, mm-hmm. um, and they were you know completely voted with the leadership every time. There was there was never any. Was very, they were very disciplined, very obedient. But then in uh, 1960, Michel Pablo, the leader of the Fourth International, and really. Posadas's main source of, um, uh, of of his politics, he gets the nuclear war stuff from this guy, Michel Pablo, goes to prison for counterfeiting money and documents for the Algerian FLN, and there's a leadership struggle within, inside the Fourth International, and Posadas makes a play to become the secretary of the Fourth International and move it to uh, Montevideo, where the BLA is located. And basically, he's, uh, you know, people say... Even if they like his politics, he's a little bit weird or, you know, he's not uh, intellectual enough. Uh, So they uh, keep the Fourth International in Europe and the Posadists leave and say that they they are now the Fourth International and they open up new chapters in Europe. Uh, So that was really the height of their powers in the early 60s. You know, they had the only section in Cuba, like I said, uh, the only section in Mexico and Brazil. uh, a powerful section in Argentina and Uruguay and and uh, in Chile as well. Um, so they were a very important group in in terms of Trotskyism, and they had a lot of influence as well. And uh, but like that's as I said, throughout the '60s, uh, the the sort of strangeness of Posadas and also a lot of their political deficiencies catch up with them, and the that base falls apart. Thank you. Yeah, that's a um, <laughs> very much kind of like. You know, the hell of an interesting life and almost uh, one of those characters in, I guess you, you could kind of say right place and right time, because had he showed up a little bit earlier or later, um, he might not be able to have been, uh, to have fit in to the particular slot that he did. Well, he's a natural organizer. Like, he, he really was, he was very charismatic. <clears throat> he had a good sense of humor. He was working class, unlike most of the Trotskyists around him. So he was a very valuable player. For the Trotskyists, but he was just not much of a reader, not much of a write. He, he couldn't really write, you know. So um, I, I could see him flourishing in other eras as well. Definitely. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that he was kind of he couldn't really write much, but once he once someone got him a reel to reel tape recorder and a mic, right. then he could just kind of get his, you know, um, he just kind of like talk and get get everything down on tape that to get transcribed later. Yeah, so all the stuff that you read from Posadas is really unwieldy and like you know difficult to parse, and that's because it was these rambling speeches. And apparently, he was very effective giving these speeches uh, live if you could hear the tape. But I've never heard the tape, so to me, it's just it's very confusing why anybody was so attracted to him or won over by him. You know, I, I do. I don't. Know, I I do have the, the just the grim humor of like you know proto podcaster type. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, Lenin would have a great podcast without a doubt. Getting in, getting yeah, somehow, but also be uh, figuring out a way to piss off all the platform all the platform holders, so that he kept getting kicked off. You know, much like getting his letters banned in Pravda because I wrote so, he wrote so many of them. Uh, Jacob, did you have another question? Uh, yeah, as far as his turn toward the eccentric, uh, I was doing 
research at, in the place where I do all of my real serious research, which is Reddit, and I found a post on our communism that said Posadas was a South American Trotskyite who was held prisoner and tortured by way of unregulated dosages of LSD by the CIA. And mm. I was just wondering yeah, if that yeah. is somebody being very creative or if there is anything at all to support this. Yeah, it's it's uh, not true. Um, Posadas was arrested in 1969 in, in Uruguay. Uh, you know, it's sorry, it's been like a year since I read the book, so it could have been 68. Uh, yeah, I think it was like the end of 68. Anyway, he he was arrested uh, because there was like this crackdown on leftist groups in Uruguay. And um, if he was ever tortured in some way, especially by someone connected to the CIA, it would have been then because the CIA did have these kind of uh, interrogation trainings with Uruguayan police and military. Uh, but in the archives, I came across a very de detailed document of pa Posadas describing his time in that jail he, he was in for several weeks while he was trying to work out an exile deal and he said that the guards were on his side that the uh you know the the prosecutors just wanted to get rid of them and you know he was worried that the cia would try to kill him because he has this it, it inflated sense of ego um and that's that's why he didn't want to be sent back to argentina that's why he worked out this deal to go to to italy instead um i have heard a more credible rumor that at some point in his youth maybe in his 20s or 30s, he went to a mental hospital, but I've seen no evidence of that. I think he was, uh, you know, manic in some way, um, perhaps maybe bipolar, I don't know. Uh, so I believe that he, he may have gone to a mental hospital at some point, but in terms of a MK Ultra patient, absolutely not. And, and also, the idea that he came up with the, the UFO ideas after being, you know, tortured or something, uh, you know, the UFO essay isn't really that bad. Like, Passas was a weird guy, but he was a he was a weird. I found an essay for, by him in like 1940 uh, that was also pretty weird. So he was always weird. Um, his ideas weren't so unusual or uncommon uh, compared to other Trotskyists. Yeah. So I the the idea that he was tortured or, or dosed or something it's just totally unfounded. And I kind of wish people would stop repeating it, but uh, you know. I guess that's just telling them to read my book. All right. So we're going to Snopes evaluate that one as false, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the UFO thing, I guess, wasn't really even coming from him so much, right? Like that was uh, Dante Minazzoli. Yeah. Minazzoli was the uh, one of the main organizers, one of the intellectual core of the movements, <clears throat> another Argentinian guy. Um, and he was just really fascinated by sci-fi and futurist literature as a kid and when the roswell incident occurred uh which you know made news everywhere in 1947 and there was ufo sightings in argentina minazzoli at one of the meetings of the group said listen these are aliens uh as marxists we need to have a, a political line on what's going on and they were like all right maybe not now this is not a good time to talk about this he was told not to talk about it anymore so then move forward to 1967 when the movement's falling apart now they suddenly have a lot of time to talk about whatever they want and they think that they're like the leaders of the vanguard party of world revolution so they want to take on these big questions uh but still most of the core or maybe half the intellectual core doesn't want to talk about this ufo stuff and basically the the famous uh ufo essay um that you can read on Marxist.org from Posadas, is him intervening in this debate between Minazzoli and Guillermo Amira and saying, uh, basically, Minazzoli's right. Uh, UFOs are aliens. They are, you know, here to uh, observe us and wait for us to reach uh, the, the right level to contact us. And uh, obviously, they're far more advanced, and more advanced for us means socialism. It doesn't mean that they are socialists. It just means that they've gotten over all of the problems that we have on Earth. Um, so if they were to make contact, uh, that would be to the benefit of humankind and actually the proletariat really wants to make contact. Uh, but then the, the last part of the essay is saying, but we shouldn't think too much about like what alien life might be like or how to contact them or whatever, because we have everything we need on Earth to make communism right now, and they're more likely to contact us if we do that. Uh, so really... It's the same argument that Carl Sagan and Josef Shklovsky make in Intelligent Life in the Universe. It's just far less scientific and more Marxist. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, I think I remember something Comrade Communicator said when interviewed or on the, one of the videos, or but that uh, that like the founding, the kind of motivating joke that his that their uh, their 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 stick was is because it's what various, especially during you know like eighties and nineties, like you know micro leftist micro sex had, had kind of been up to, and you know just kind of the more increasingly esoteric and bizarre theories of revolution that you know nuclear war bringing on uh space comrades and it, bringing us communism and, and you know harmony with the dolphins was not really all that much out there compared comparatively with some of the other uh some of the other operating theories uh, i think it's the weirdest one when you put it all together like that that's true yeah, these were the all individually, though, strains that seemed to be running throughout the different factions, right? Like, there was uh, well, pieces dolphins, here and there. Dolphins was pretty unique, but that was not a big part of Posadism. That was something that you could say he got into when he was sundowning, you know, in his last two years of life. Um, now, right, the nuclear even, war even stuff that came was, from Igor Tchaikovsky, right? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, that that's like a New Age thing. Like, I think he read about it in a tabloid. Uh, so this was not something other Trotskyists, as far as I know, were thinking about. Some other Trotskyists made comments about UFOs and, you know, maybe believed in but Trotskyists really believed it. You know, it was, and to this day, even after the death of Posadas, they still talk about the search for extraterrestrial life. They still defend his position, as I think they should, honestly. But the nuclear war stuff was very central to Trotskyism in the late 40s and 50s, uh, but Posadas did keep keep that position for too long because it basically it was based on this idea that capitalism was going to collapse after world war ii and it didn't and then uh you know nuclear weapons got more powerful and you know the the balance of powers has changed in, in, in a number of ways so posadas that position long after it made any sense and he he like doubled down on it saying you know we need the nuclear war it's going to happen any day we're going to survive uh and uh, and that's yeah he was unique for how chauvinistic he was about nuclear war, even to the extent that the Posadists in Cuba reprimanded Castro uh, for um, agreeing to the the uh, the uh, uh, turning the the Soviet ships around, uh, which you know caused most of them to be arrested. Yeah, that's one, yeah that is one point of. Uh, I did want to pick up, but of the the facet of apocalyptic collapse, and it's almost like the obsession with it. But as a point of, it's like almost like proto accelerationism or something of like, you know, this horrible thing needed to happen uh, before, it's like, you know, the old world needed to get swept away, and then you know somehow, and then afterwards somehow, you know, this would be the society that would be built afterwards. And I, the one thing I did, um, I was always curious about why, because I think the, well, I used to say, it, it, it's almost like these are, these are all like um, currents that were floating in the air, like, you know, sci-fi and UFOs were, were getting to be much more of a bigger pop cultural thing in the late 60s. Um, you know, uh, Daniken's book, uh, Chariots of the God, gets published in 1968. Star Trek airs in 1965. Um but also, like, uh, uh, in terms of, like, the, the uh, in, all, in all, during this while, you still have the whole, like, you know, mutually assured destruction thing going on, where it's, it's one of those uh, little, like, factoids from history that I don't think everybody really takes into account that, you know, while all, like, the mid, uh, mid-20th mid century shit was happening, like, in the back of everybody's mind, a lot of people were just terrified that, you know, there's, like, this nagging fear that someday it could all be, you know, turned into just one massive cinder. Yeah, exactly, and... uh the the difference though was the conflict was between these two visions of the future of humanity and so when the soviet union collapsed a lot of communists uh trotskyists for sure and i think actually you know pro-soviet communists really thought that maybe we this was going to be like uh a chance for socialism to really develop and for the ideas of socialism to no longer be trapped within you know the the borders of the uh of the iron curtain um and that we would no longer need nuclear weapons. We would no longer need militarization. You know, the end of history stuff. Uh, because for a long time, people thought that if we could just end the Cold War, we could make real progress as a species. So even though, for example, the space race was just an extension of the arms race, mm -hmm. extension of the Cold War, the entire world was, you know, very excited to see 
Neil Armstrong land on the moon and, you know, plant the, the flag of Yankee imperialism. But it was, you know, the most watched. It was like the most unifying event in human history to watch this occur. So there was a lot of optimism amidst this catastrophism. And part of the question of the book is we've got the catastrophism today. You know, we think that, you know, uh, society is going to collapse from global warming or, or, or whatever. Uh, but there's no optimism. It's just dystopian after that. Yeah. And that's something Posadas, I think that's something why people like Posadas is because he has optimism in the face of certain a certainty of doom that I think we all feel today. Yeah, there that's true. It's like the um it is uh, difficult to at least if you are uh if you consume enough enough media or on online enough to get any to get almost like to get a sense of optimism really supercharged. It's like there's plenty of people who are optimists, but um, getting there can be difficult for a lot of others, I guess. The um, if that's a veiled remark at me. I won't hear it and I won't <laughs> respond to it. Uh, no comment. I think one of the characters in the book that Jacob wanted to know about, more about was uh, Lopez Rega. Can you? Ma- oh my God! Yeah, uh, Jacob. What's what sparked your interest in in Senor Rega? I don't know. Maybe the fact that he was like holding weird prayer sessions to infuse people with other people's souls uh, in the middle of a presidential succession crisis. That yeah, and not just anybody. Avita Peron, Avita Peron's corpse was laid head to head with Isabel Peron. Perone's new wife in a ceremony that was supposed to transfer the spirit of, of Evita into Isabel to prepare her for her political career, which uh, was a total disaster. Uh, but yeah, uh, unbelievable thing that did happen apparently, that uh, the, the head of Perone's security, Lopez Rega, was a, pr- a practitioner of a spiritismo, which was a kind of like Argentinian Santeria, you could say, and he was also a Nazi, um, he was and, a member of P two, yeah. yeah. Like he's like a he's like a Wolfenstein villain, but Argentinian. Oh yeah, yeah. He is he is like the uh, a true villain of Argentine history for sure. Ever everybody knows who he is. Yeah, I I never heard of him before I read this book. And I, I I loved you know this is another thing researching it that I loved that there there was a list uh, of you know the initial targets of of Rega and the. The AAA, the anti-communist alliance, this you know paramilitary group that would lead to the you know the death of tens of thousands of of leftists in Argentina, and that the first list when they formed had Homero Castali on it. He was he was one of the first targets, and uh, just as Casadas had been denounced by name uh, by Fidel Castro in '67, uh, Juan Perón, once he came back as president also denounced Posadas, which was very bizarre because Posadas had no relevance in Argentina. People had forgot, forgotten who he is if they ever knew. So that was the first time Posadas became kind of a meme where the, the uh, Argentine and Uruguayan press were saying, who the fuck is Posadas? So he became this kind of boogeyman figure. Yeah. It's, um, folks, 70s history is a uh, complicated, bizarre thing. Yeah, I'm just imagining Donald Trump after the election coming out and just blaming everything on Lyndon LaRouche. That's just like the, everybody's just like, what? What does that well, have to do with anything? It's, not, it's maybe more like the way people put a lot of uh, stress into Dugan, or uh, no, Dugan's not not the best example. Who's like a leftist that people like the right wing says is pulling all the strings? Um, not, not Soros, but like a Saul Alinsky. Yeah, Saul Alinsky might be a good one. Something like that, like maybe. Someone I, mean, I think it. they've actually done that one before, though. So, oh no, no thing is, you know, they did yeah during the during the 2008 election, but they brought that back. It's at some point over the last year or two, they started bringing it like the 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 slam Alinskyite, which is just like wow. The, you want to talk about the, uh, the the tank running dry and um, and them just kind of like having to grasp at anything is uh, it was weird to see that coming back, but so. There, there's a woman in Oakland. Uh, I don't remember her name, but she's part of a group called By Any Means Necessary, and they're they're kind of like a culty. I don't know if they're Marxist-Leninist or or what they are. Some kind of lefty group in Oakland that's kind of like extreme and, and culty, like I said. And they do Antifa stuff, and the Nazis really hate her 
So they elevated her to be like this, you know, leader of Antifa or something to try to like get someone to kill her or for the state to prosecute her, which they ended up doing. The state ended up prosecuting her um, for like punching some Nazi a couple of times. Uh, but that's that's maybe comparable. Where like they ch- they choose someone that like anyone who's on the left knows is not an important figure, uh, but it's better to choose someone kind of ridiculous and marginal than choose someone who could actually be uh, a real leader. And you could shoot yourself in the foot by elevating them. Yeah, I'm almost wondering. It's the way that you know some of these dynamics are. I'm wondering how much of the of that kind of thing is, or I, actually, I, I guess it would probably change depending on who do it, who did it. Of how much of it is strategic versus how how much of it is just the um, they are you know they are that bad at understanding uh, at, at understanding like how leftist movements work. So at some point, is this deliberate? Is it accidental? And ultimately, you know, do they care? And like half the time... I mean, that's the big question with Perón, because Perón was like the hero of the left, and then he comes back back in 70... You know, Argentina elects like a social democrat, uh, you know, left-wing Peronist in 72. Uh, He immediately uh, allows Perón to return from exile and resigns to allow Perón to to run for president, and Perón wins. And then Perón goes hard to the right, and, and forms this anti-communist alliance, uh, and then immediately dies. So he just like leaves the hands, the country in the hands of the far right. You know, just a couple years earlier, everybody was the left had had won. You know, it was like their revolution almost, uh, which is an incredible turn of events. Um, but uh, the question that a lot uh, is still debated with Perón is if he knew if he was always right wing or if he was. You know, Rega had manipulated him and tricked him into hating the left, uh, or uh, or if he was playing some long game and then died before he could play out. Uh, nobody really knows. And his invocation of Posadas, his scapegoating of Posadas, uh, is another one of those mysteries. Like, did he was he just confused? Was he trying to blame uh, Santucho, for for example, who was a Trotskyist guerrilla active in Argentina? And instead of Santucho, he said Posadas because he just didn't know. And it's still a matter of debate. Yeah, well, the impression I got uh, from other things I read, and from this book in particular, is that he was doing that thing that a lot of fascists do, which is just being cynically opportunist. So if there's an opportunity to, you know, form alliances with farmers in Italy or with socialists in Germany, this is an opportunity that they take. And they make the deals that they need to get power, and then they... Once they've taken power, they do what they want. I'm under the impression that he was being manipulated to a large extent. But part of that manipulation is, like you said, he had been won over to a more fascist worldview than what he had initially uh, when he was president in the 40s. So he, you know, he he became a political figure out of admiration of uh, of the fascists, mostly Mussolini. But he, as le- as as president, he never. He was a dictator, but he never uh, he was never specifically anti-Semitic. For example, um, he he was uh, like really the best benevolent like third positionist dictator you could have for a period of time when Argentina was very prosperous because Europe was was ruined from the war. Uh, so when he goes into exile in '55, uh, the left fights with their lives for Perón to come back. You know. The trade unions are all Peronists, and there's like this kind of left-right alliance of Peronists uh, representing the working class mostly, who want to ha- want to get him back. Um, so, I mean, that's how he came up, right, with the General Confederation of Labor. Uh, no, he he came up through the military, and he was able to co-opt the CGT uh, okay. by basically um, intervening in strikes and just letting the workers win, but, you know, making a, a protection racket basically from his, his ministry of labor. So the CGT came and became incredibly popular, but he was even more popular with the workers than the CGT was. And he was able to replace everyone in the CGT with, with Peronists. And to this day, it's still (laughs) largely Peronists who run the CGT. Hmm. The past isn't even past. Uh, one question I did have uh, on the, I guess the connect the connection with, and the, uh, the connection with being a rev- uh, being a revolutionary and LARPing because it has this definitely it does come up uh, a few times in the book. And I think it's almost like 
it kind of speaks to uh, again because we you know of you know popular you know pop, uh, popular lack of imagination now of what a like what a revolutionary would look like, much less what would a revolution look like. And at some point, that anybody who'd want to strike out in in that area would almost be seen as LARPing, or which for those who don't know, LARP is an acronym meaning live action role playing. Um, or kind of like play acting, and there's you know there's just a little section that I wanted to read uh, on this from uh, from your from your book is what might be considered cringeworthy LARPing today. Marx argued could actually be helpful. Martin Luther LARPed as the Apostle Paul to challenge the the Catholic Church, and the French Revolution revolutionaries LARPed as the Roman Republic to deliver to deliver the bourgeois class from aristocratic uh, domination. And so I'm wondering if can you talk about that for a little bit? And I mean, this might be more almost like more of like a theory question of, I guess, that particular question of would anybody wanting, you know, wanting to be a revolutionary today, how much would LARPing or even like, you know, prefigurative culture play into that? Well, why why do you see LARPing and prefigurative culture as connected? Well, I think, well, I think both of them are both of them to me at least well they they both seem as deliberately choosing a a way of uh interacting like a like a, a you know a group culture that is different that is almost you know that's consciously different from um i don't know mainstream stuff like you know basic everyday stuff you know that that then one would do without doing that it's like there's a there's a, a particular uh, ch- it is like two um I guess, you know, just kind of like adopting a group culture or even a personal culture or personal form of expression that is, I want to say, even like if if maybe a little, maybe a lot, but like particularly affected. Can you give me an example? Um, not really. No, I can't. I don't can't. I can't think of like uh, I can't think of. Um, a particular example of that, but I'm just wondering of, but it's just the, there's just something in the book that struck me as, again, of what a lot of people would see as, like, uh, um, but yeah, just the phrase, like, cringeworthy LARPing. Yeah. So I guess what I meant by that was, well, you know, I think I used that phrase when talking about the May Day celebration in New York that Comrade Communicator and I went to. Mm hmm. And, you know, Comrade Communicator was literally LARPing as a posadist. Right. Know, uh, he looked, he, you know, he looked great, but it was his very ridiculous outfit and passing out these posadist zines. And some people got that it was a joke, but a lot of people didn't. They thought he was just a leftist, you know? Um, so I guess uh, the, the point I was trying to make to vindicate LARPing was that um, it... I think in identifying with marginal or failed figures from the past, be it Posadas or Lenin or, you know, even Marx or the the Paris Commune, we do have to kind of imagine, like, to the the extent that they really believed that revolution was going to happen, and they weren't just kind of telling themselves this lie. Like, we have to try to, to think about what their motivations were, why it was that way then, uh... But and that can be helpful in kind of putting us in the headspace of of uh, evaluating conditions and potentials today. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we have to be ourselves in our moment um, and find our own path. And so this kind of uh, conjuncture or, or disjuncture between you know the revolutionaries of the past, the, the failed revolutionaries of the past, and the nightmare of the present is what Marx is talking about in this first chapter of 18th Premier, and he says that, you know, uh, we, we need to conjure up these spirits in a certain way, but also the point isn't to make them walk again in some kind of, you know, act of espiritismo or something, uh, but to to figure out uh, what, what we should do, how we should start. And that really is the secret, uh, is that we need to start and we need to do something, um, so it can't be pure LARPing, but it also, you know, we can't totally break with history either. Yeah, as I think Matt Crispin once put it, you have nothing to lose but your cringe just by doing something. Well, I, you know, I think cringe, uh, a lot of people associate being sincere and saying what they really think as being cringe. And I think that's the exact opposite of what we need. We need less, you know, I, not that I don't uh, appreciate irony or I'm not a very ironic person, but Passatis made a critique of irony, which I think was very correct, which was that it's 
it helps us uh, kind of survive the 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 overall untruthfulness of class society. Uh, you know, it lets us make little jokes about how bullshit the social order is. Uh, but that kind of humor just kind of reinforces things in a way. Mm. Um, so I think we do need to get over some of that irony and to a certain extent. And I think we need to allow ourselves to be cringe and say what we really think and how we really feel and accept people who say say those things. Awesome. Um, let's see, we're getting, we've got about uh, 7.53 or so. Once again, yeah, thanks for being up for chatting with us uh, this evening. Uh, looking back over your book, uh, I just got a couple more things. Looking back over your book, is there, if you had to do all over again, what would you think you would have, um, you would have emphasized more, or what would you think you would have liked, you know, could you have, would you have uh, changed anything if you had to write your book all over again, or what do you think you wish you would have uh, emphasized? Uh, I've never thought about that. I mean, there's some typos that I really don't like, and I, I hope they get taken out uh, in a future edition. That's not really my call. Uh, no, I think the book is like, you know, I worked on it every day for three years, and I didn't know that I could write a book. I just did it to see if I could, and I'm really, really happy with it. Um, I think maybe like that, that quote from Marx that I used wasn't quite right. Like, I might not have interpreted that correctly. <laughs> so, like, maybe some of the, the Marxism was a little bit off, but uh, I think, I'm, you know, it helps the point along. Mm-hmm. What do you All think? Right. Do you think that there's anything I could have done differently or should have you would have seen more of or less of? Jacob? I think that you did slightly misinterpret Marx, and for that, I'm expelling you from the Portland <laughs> Revolutionary Podcast, this Trotsky movement. I'm sorry. Specifically that part? or Yeah, it was just that one part. I'm, I'm kicking you out. <laughs> you mentioned that you actually did try to talk to some of the remaining original po- posadists and that you didn't have the best of luck with that. Uh, yeah, I talked any- to one guy in Uruguay, um, and it was great talking to him, but I really had to convince him, you know. And, and Uruguayans are very nice. They're like the, the Canadians, but uh, Argentinians are like the Americans. So the American Posadists really did not want to talk to me, and they, they closed their d- the door. I went to their office, and they closed the door in, in my face and later bragged that they had expelled an imperialist agent from the New York Times. Um, so I... It's very unfortunate I wasn't able to talk to Leon Cristalli, Passas's son, uh, who currently leads the Fourth International. But at the same time, they haven't criticized the book at all. You know, they haven't uh, issued a, f- a fatwa against me or a lawsuit. Um, so, and also most of the Trotskyists who have read it, who who knew him or knew the Passatists, um, have liked the book, uh, and you know they have minor critiques. But I thought for sure the Trotskyists would really be mad at me because it's not a very pro Trotskyist book um, but uh, everyone seems happy with it maybe they're not reading it closely enough yeah. was awesome. there anything that you were looking into that you couldn't necessarily close the gap on or there were there things about Posadas that you thought you know were interesting but you didn't necessarily felt like they that you could make the argument strongly enough to include in the book yeah uh, I, I did want to know I needed more confirmation about what those last years of Posadas' life were like because all of the all of my uh, original sources left the movement in 74, 75. So I had documents from Posadas himself describing the day-to-day activity um, when it was really a cult, you know, including raising his child. His child was supposed to be like this messianic figure who would take over the movement after him. An indigo uh, child. Yep. Oh, well, more no, more of a star child. Indigo yeah. child's like an alien child, right? I don't like, alien remember child, right? all, the, all the memes on that one, but yeah. I think Indigo Children. Some it's much more like a almost like a like a hippieish. Um, uh, yeah, there's an entire thing about it, but I I could I it's it's failing me now. Yeah, but, but a lot of these cults had star children who were you know the cult had like a messianic baby, and everybody uh, and so like the education of Homerita, you know, it, it named the the daughter after him, uh, became the most important thing, and I. I, I reached out to uh, her, and she really asked that I respect her privacy and uh, didn't want to talk to me too much about her dad or her childhood. Um, so I really wanted to talk to her. I wanted to know about uh, her mother, and I wanted to know about uh, Pisaas' first wife, the mother of Leon Cristalli, uh, who... Uh, Candida? Yeah. Can, thank you. I, I forgot. Candida Prevatera, uh, party name Sierra, because she was a central 
figure in all of this and just in Pisas's writing he doesn't talk about her much and he kicked her out of the movement so he could uh get together with a younger militant and that's yeah and that is a really ugly story uh that i just i only have one source for and that's and so you know i would have loved to have tracked her down or you know some of the women in the movement basically who had been expelled by him gotcha all right uh wrapping things up i think Thanks a lot for uh, for for chatting with us. Uh, one of the only the closest thing to a regular segment we do in our show is called endorsements and recommendations. What have you been digging on that you would want more people to find out about? Uh, for the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Paris Commune, I have been reading Kristen Ross's Communal Luxury, which uh, looks at the history of the, the the Paris Commune with a bit of a um, you know, may, maybe a little bit of more pro-anarchist uh, position, mm-hmm. but also getting into you know how it how it came about, how it changed the position of the international, leading to the debates between Marx and Bakunin. Uh, but it's a really inspiring book uh, in its portrayal of what the international was like. So, and it's a quick read, really great. Uh, hopefully, I'll have her on the show at some point. Uh, I'll have her on the Antifada, and I'd like to recommend the the works of Bob Dylan, especially during the 60s, but also uh, I really like Desire um, and uh, Blonde on Blonde came out in the 70s, so check out Bob Dylan. There you go. Jacob, do you have anything? I do not have any recommendations this time. I think I don't know. I don't think the only thing I have to recommend. I don't. I don't think I did this last time, but I recommend if, if folks haven't heard the scene or heard the show yet, check out This Is Revolution, uh, hosted by Jason Miles, and it's kind of both a podcast, but it's also a YouTube show that kind of streams about three times a week, featuring Jason and his uh, co-host uh, Pascal Robert, uh, writer of the, or I should say, a writer at the Black Agenda Report. If you want. Uh, funny black Marxists uh, Gen Xers just having a good time and getting into a lot of important history and topics and um, yeah it's just kind of uh, it's it's interesting because they will bring up stuff from like the 80s and 90s that a lot of like younger hosts today uh, don't really connect because it's nice when you if you are a Gen Xer like me it's kind of you know you remember that because you experienced it the first time so yeah I think everybody should check out This Is Revolution all right. Um, once again, I want to thank, thanks. Uh, thanks for being with us. Is there um, how can is there anything you want to plug or how can folks get a hold of you if you have any questions or comments? Still there? Oh, sorry. I turned my mic off for a second. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at SpaceProl, and you know I've got a link tree with links to where to buy the book, and you can listen to the Antifada, and you can watch our Antifada Twitch stream at twitch.tv/theantifada, and then also uh, read my newsletter gitlets.substack.com excellent well anyway uh, it, but yeah great thank you I uh, want to thank uh, Andy uh, uh, author of the book I Want to Believe Posadism UFOs and Apocalypse, Apocalypse Communism put out by Pluto Press it is an interesting um, mix of cult of let's uh, say Latin American history um, cultural commentary and leftist history all, all along um, yeah all right, cool. Uh, see, does anybody have any uh, final words to say? No, nope, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, cool. All right, uh, thanks a lot. Day gets bright.